Well, if you would, take your Bible this morning. Uh, we're going to be in the book of Philippians once again, uh, picking up where we had left off. But as you're turning there, uh, so important uh, as we think about these uh, principles together. But we're also here uh, celebrating a, 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 memor- or a weekend of 4th of July. What a blessing to us. I don't know about you, but uh, it's kind of nice to be free and have freedom, isn't it? Uh, that freedom, uh, whether it's our, our freedom that we experience in the country that we live in, but whether, most importantly, the freedom that we experience in Jesus Christ. Uh, but we know freedom is never free, is it? It costs something. And so I think it's fitting as we look at a text of, an, a text of Scripture and are in a text of Scripture that Paul is talking about the reality of what it's like to live in righteousness with the kind of freedom, the kind of abandonment that we can have living holy lives in the midst of a culture that is filled with all kinds of sin. Paul was uh, very helpful in guiding us to these perspectives. Now, one of the challenges with freedom is often, as you find, whether it's freedom in a country or predominantly, as we will talk about, the freedom that we have in Christ to live according to his righteous and holy standards. You will probably have recognized this about freedom. Freedom often becomes something that is often taken for granted. Something that we experience for such a long period of time that all of a sudden it just becomes something that is normal, and when it becomes normal, it becomes one of those things where We don't think about what it costs in order for us to experience it. And then freedom turns to something of a right instead of an appreciation and enjoyment. And you see this kind of mantra given out in all the culture, but you also see this displayed in lives of Christians. That the freedom that they experience in Christ is now, in some sense, well, I have the right to be happy. I have the right to have God say, you bend your will to mine. We look at freedom even in Christ as something that, uh, even though earned by someone else, not by ourselves, but now becomes a right in which I have the right to a happy and joyful and all of these suffering-free components of life. Well, that same kind of ideology spreads in various components in culture where you see now it is a right and the right then becomes some mandate that everybody has to capitulate to whatever my experience I feel needs to be. Paul, by the way, if you haven't figured it out in Philippians and all throughout his epistles and pastoral epistles, have you found this? He's less concerned about what you feel like and he's more concerned about your obedience. Now, he loves the people of the, of, the, of the city of Philippi. He loves the church at Philippi. In fact, very on early in the book, remind yourself of this mentality. He says, I have you in my heart. I am so in tune with loving and appreciating you, but all the love and appreciation I have for you has to, he wants to convey it in a way to say, but you're still responsible. You're still responsible no matter how much I love you to do the things that God wants you to do. Now in our section in Philippians chapter 3, we'll catch ourselves up as we look at this particular section. We'll we'll start 
uh, we'll back up just to maintain our perspective of thought. Start in verse 7. Paul said this, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and I may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness that depends on faith. And here's our text that we're going to park on this morning. So that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. You notice these words, and I love it. We'll, we'll launch into our present text, but, but, but make sure your mind is fixed on this. Paul desired to be found in Christ, to be known by him, the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ. But when he was known by Christ, he was then found in him. You know, that foundation that we have as Christian believers, when we have the righteousness that depends on faith, which comes through a repentance and trust, we then, we have what, what, what theologians will describe as a positional place in God's kingdom. We have positional sanctification. No one, once you're found in him, no one can ever take that away from you. Don't you love those words that Jesus would, would, would say in, in John chapter 10, verses 22, and all throughout that section, all the way through 30, when he's talking about, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them. And he says, but it's more than that. They know me. When you are found in Christ, and you have a positional sanctification because of your justification, and your standing before God, your legal standing has been freed. And you stood before the king of heaven, the righteous judge of the universe. And oh, those words of the scripture that says you are free from sin and death. That the almighty one of heaven would look at you and your life in all the sin that you have likely experienced at this point and as a result of Christ's work on your behalf and you repented and trusted in his work, he said to you, you are guiltless in my eyes because of my son. That is what it means to be found in him. But it's not just to say, I have this positional standing now as a result of my justification. Oh, but what an anchor that gives to us in Philippians 1.6, which is why Paul says it, that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. If we start putting all of these principles together of the, of the book of Philippians, well, why, is that, why can he say that? Because he'd been found in him. And once you're found in him, don't you just love this? No one erases your name from the book of life. You're not going to get to heaven and say, I know it was in there. See, it's either in there or it's not. And at the last moment, you're not going to get a chance to have somebody pencil it in. Because once you have the opportunity here on this earth, 
this is your opportunity to be found in him. To have your life mean and have, have meaning and purpose and value. And it can't be within all these earthly, trivial things that we experience. Even earthly freedom, by the way, has to take a back seat to our freedom in Christ. It's more important that we live Christian lives and secondarily that we are happen to be free citizens. Now, I love both. But even if he were to take away our freedoms, as many countries experience, that will not take away your freedom in Christ. And that should not take away any resolve, any disposition of your mind to say, no matter how hard it, hard it gets, I will choose to obey and live a life that is worthy of the King of kings and Lord of lords. But you don't do it not having been found in him with a righteousness that doesn't belong to you. Don't you love these passages like Galatians 3, why Paul would talk about these in verse number 24 when he says, so then the law was our guardian. Some, uh, some translations will say it was our schoolmaster until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ and have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave or free, there is neither male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you're Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. And Paul was reminding the Philippian believers and those who struggled with thinking that they would have a righteousness that was brought to them by adherence to a legal law system of the Jewish faith, because we talked a little bit about this idea of the Judaizers, or whatever religious ritualistic system you may have been brought up under, it is not good if it doesn't end up drawing you to a saving, repentant faith in Jesus Christ. Well, why was the law there, by the way? Just keep this in your mind. It was to guide you. I mean, could you imagine how hard it was for, 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 the, for the Jewish people, especially for the Jews of Jesus' day when he would stand up in Matthew chapter 5 and look at them after a brilliant sermon and all this kind of exposition and then look at them and say something like this, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of God. I can only imagine there was an audible gasp from the people in the crowd that day. Like, how are we supposed to do that? These guys are keeping the law for us, doing what we could never do for ourselves. And Jesus was there to remind them that they had a great high priest. And it wasn't these, it wasn't the yearly high priest. It was himself, come, willing to offer them, guiding them. What did the law do? It gives you knowledge of sin. Don't shy away from the Bible, Christian, just because it's going to show you what kind of sinner you are. In fact, it is only through the reading of the Scripture and understanding the law and the principles of the Bible that you will rightly see yourself in light of this God of holiness. And it's only by seeing yourself as an unrighteous individual who doesn't deserve to be allowed to enter into the gates of heaven, that you will appreciate grace 
and mercy to the degree that you can. Yes, the way up is the way down. John the Baptist was right. Imagine that. I mean, he must increase and we must decrease. How does that happen? By the knowledge of sin that comes through the law. All throughout Romans, Paul would not say that the law is bad. He's saying it's so good. Why is it good? Because it forces us into a perspective that we don't have the right to stand before this holy God of heaven. Something is wrong. And unless somebody makes it right, and in this case, his son, we have no chance to be allowed into the kingdom of heaven. Oh, so that we can say these verses like we can appreciate Psalms 32 too, where it says, where David says, blessed is the man whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Oh, Christian, if you put your faith in Jesus Christ and you're here this morning, does that not fuel when you sing that, that sin? Here I, I'm standing before, what can I say? What can I do but do one thing, offer myself to you, to the King of Heaven? That is what he intends for you and I. And as we walk through uh, this text this morning, these last two verses, I really want to impress on our minds as Paul desired for the Philippian believers to recognize this, that Christ's righteousness is freely offered for the purpose of restoring and enriching our relationship with God. It's not giving you a comfort-free life. It's not get saved and all your problems are gone. Man, that'd be really, really nice. And that would be a great line to, to catch people. Like, if you get saved, then you won't suffer. Man, I mean, you imagine we could double the attendance if that were true. And it wouldn't take very long either. But if that is the idea that somehow God gets us to the point where all he's concerned about is our, just our simple happiness, righteousness is offered for the purpose of restoring you because you were broken and for enriching you in your relationship with God. You and I have been designed as people to have relationship with the living God. And doesn't this blow your mind? He wants to have it with you. But the problem is, when we don't have a relationship with God, you can imagine, is it on his side that the relational problem exists? It's not, is it? It only leaves one other party, by the way, and it's us. And it's you and I looking at our lives saying, this righteousness means something, and it meant something to Paul, which is why I think as we look at this text together this morning and we think about these three purposeful pursuits of Paul's relationship with God. All the text culminates this section of scripture in Philippians 3 all the way from verse 1 all the way down through verse 11 and now we park on these last two verses. This is a purpose clause, a purpose statement at the very end to sum things all up and this isn't the first time that he said this about the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. He says this, that I might know him. Here's what I think he's trying to get across to help us. That revelation was for the purpose of relationship. Revelation is for the purpose of relationship. I mean, wouldn't you have loved to have been Adam and Eve in the garden? I mean, of all times, it's just, if, you could, if you could transport yourself back into a time period uh, in, earth, in earth history, 
I mean, I'm thinking, I'm going right back to the beginning because I want to know what it's like to have the Lord walk and talk with them in the garden. And all throughout this, God was intending to reveal himself, which is why scripture is so valuable to us. It is the way in which a transcendent God displays himself before the people that he has created. This idea of knowledge, to know him, what's behind all that. This idea was a very familiar Greek understanding, this this, this idea of secret knowledge, especially in the ritualistic cults of the first century. This idea of being able to know something that was hidden in secret, but then now revealed. Well, that's what he's trying to describe here. To know him, one who was the hidden, holy, transcendent God who revealed himself in the knowledge of his own son, which is why Jesus could say over and over again, if you've seen me, You've seen the Father. What was the point? It was to know him. It was was not just this idea of I'm saved and so I'm safe from hell. Now I am so glad that we are saved and we are secured, which means we're safe from hell. And And the idea of hell, by the way, although sometimes not spoken of very frequently, ought to scare your mind. Because it is a place where the one place that God will never be, no matter matter what happens in the end, God will never exist in in that area. You will be separated forever for eternity. He didn't want that. He wanted you to know him, so he created this world. For example, this is our idea of general revelation. This is what in theology we describe as God's general revelation or information to all people. Most theologians describe this idea of general revelation as common grace. So that all who would understand and see the beauties of all that God has created, that they would look and say, well, that didn't create itself. Novel thought. <laughs> Nothing happens. When there is a, when there is a design, guess what? There is a designer. I mean, there is not one, there's not one thing that is made that has ever existed and you held in your possession that you thought to yourself, I imagine, he was like, this just came into being. Somebody made something that you appreciate. And in this case, general revelation was given so that all humanity that have ever walked the face of the earth, image bearers of God, would look at the trees, would look at the flowers, would look at the beauty, would look at the stars, and they would conclude to themselves, somebody did this. And it was supposed to draw them to an understanding of searching that there was one who did it. It was the God of heaven. It was the God of Israel. And it's revealed to us in John 1 that there was not anything made without him, Jesus Christ. And one day, Christian, we will not just know of his general truths by his common grace. We will know him face to face. Oh, what a privilege that you and I get to experience. This is what he's trying to convey the hidden glories of a transcendent, righteous God who sent his own son so that we could 
experience a life filled with righteousness. That our life's goal and our life's aim would be, would be bigger than just eter- uh, earthly happiness. This is exactly what Paul says in, in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 5 to 6. Listen to what he says. For what we proclaim is not of ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as servants for Jesus Christ's sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Christians, how badly do you want to know him? That really becomes the question. See, if you've repented and trusted in Jesus Christ by faith, you have a positional sanctification. You are secured and you're justified in him. But the question still remains is, do you want to know him? He has given us knowledge both in general revelation, but he's gone so much further. But 2 Timothy 3, 16, that all scripture is given by the inspiration of God is profitable for doctrine, reproof, and correction, and training in righteousness so that the man or woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for all good works. What is the good works that he's prepared for us? That we might know him together to do the things and live life with experiences where he says, Watch what I can do in the most horrific circumstances. That's what we recognized last week with, the, with what happened in the Supreme Court justice decision of Roe v. Wade. Here's the God of heaven going and halting all humanity for a moment and going, I'm in charge. Don't forget it. Whether you like it or not, and many don't like it, and many will continue not, not to like it. But the reality is, to know him is so important for us. Now think about this just for a moment. We couple these two theological terms together because we use them, and you've heard me use it once already. This idea of God being a transcendent God. What does that mean? Well, transcendence means, in also connection with holiness, means God is outside of absolutely everything that has been created from the very beginning. He is so outside of it, and he has to be. Why? Because all that has now been created by the living God has now been tainted with sin. And if God was somehow inside what he had created, he then himself would be affected by the very sin that exists in the world. But he's not. How is he not affected? Because he's completely transcendent. Now, this has led so many to believe, especially in liberal theology over the years, that somehow that this transcendent God is aloof to all of of humanity and all of their issues and all of their challenges. You imagine if you just focused on the transcendence of God. He's outside of creation. He's nothing like me. He's completely holy. He's righteous in all he does. And then you think, how do you know someone who is outside of you, whose barrier is blocked by sin that's created such a secure separation, and yet he wants to fellowship with you, and you can't have it 
unless what? Unless you earn righteousness? Unless you do a bunch of good religious things? No, the only thing that can happen is that a transcendent God has to break into earth, earth history, in time, in space. And he did it. The transcendent became someone who was imminent. And the idea of transcendency and imminency coupled together realize that we have this holy God who's so far above us and yet he is imminent, he is so near and so close to us. But if you focus on all the closeness and you say, well now he's so good and he's so close, what is the tendency to do in our own humanness? To make God like us. And he's nothing like us. Now the reality is, is this is why theologians often in their uh, systematic theology books will couple transcendence and imminency together. Because if you focus only on one, you get this theistic God who has wound up the clock and now he's aloof and doesn't really care. Or you have this God who is so personable that you get the, TV, you get the t-shirt slogan, Jesus. And I've watched these. Jesus is my homeboy. Doesn't that dumb down holiness? It can't be that we're trying to bring God so near that we don't elevate the status of his righteous, holy, individual nature. Paul is trying to say to us, my purpose in life because of the righteousness of Christ has afforded me the opportunity to know a God who was so transcendent he became near to me. On the road to Damascus, he stopped me, dead in my tracks, gave me new purpose in Christ. All the things I used to live for, thought I could earn, as religious as they might have been viewed, they will never draw him any bit closer to the Savior that he knew had died for his sins. Christians, don't be so fooled that all of a sudden we can't make similar mistakes, which has gone through all of theological history. A focus on such transcendence, by the way, where liberal theology is born into a system where liberal theology throughout history was known for the non-supernatural. Well, that just doesn't seem to work in a Bible that's filled with supernatural things and a saving faith, and repentance, and an imputed righteousness that only comes by the miraculous hand of God, if there is no room for the miraculous, then there is no room for God. That's the problem. And in our theology as Christians, this is why Paul would, would anchor these points to say, he is knowable to us. Both in general revelation, which makes a person responsible He gives us a special revelation of the word so we can go to Psalm 19 and it says the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. We can go to Psalms that says, as the deer pants for water, so my soul longs for you, O God. Oh, but it's not just experience, by the way, to know him. It's knowing the very revealed will. Don't you love the fact that he doesn't hide a good majority, of a, a big chunk of his will 
in secret? Or you think of verses like Deuteronomy 29, 29? The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the revealed things belong to us and to our children forever. See, sometimes we're so fixated in finding out the secret will of God that we pay very little attention to the revealed will of God. What is the revealed will of God? Well, he did such this kind thing to write it all down for us. So if you've got a Bible in your hand, and for you to say, I just don't know how to find God's will, well, you can look here. This is a great place to start, and probably the only place that you're going to find where you can find purpose, meaning, happiness, and joy. It's so complete, by the way, that 2 Peter, in chapter 1, verse 3, that says, He has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Here's what that means. His revealed for the believer who comes to faith in Christ is so complete that when you stand before him desiring to hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant, that there is not enough, there's nothing that is left out of here that, that you'll stand accountable before and he'll say, ah, well, I should have told you that. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> it's not going to happen. He's written everything down so that the believer can have a God-centered, spiritually-focused life that, that, bore, that bears the fruits of the Spirit on a regular basis so that when people in the world see the Christian, they are seeing a reflection of the image of the Almighty, his holiness, his righteousness, his care for people, his compassion. This is what it means that, to be able to know him, and Paul devoted his life because he understood that revelation was for the purpose of relationship. Christian, what's keeping you from time with God? I live a life as a pastor and cared for people long enough to realize that one of the first questions I ask is, tell me what's going on with your spiritual walk and tell me what your devotions look like. And a majority of the time, when you are in a rut in your own spiritual life, time with God in the word becomes the first thing to go. There's a lot of reasons why that happens, by the way. But we don't want, when we want our way and God's trying to tell us a different way, we're not as always akin to saying, hey, show me your will. We're kind of praying like, Lord, let my will be done, not yours. It draws us away from the very special relationship in the understanding of God. But you've got to ask yourself, if you're not in the word this morning, what's keeping you from getting there? It can't be all these excuses that you will use. I don't have enough time, and I, my kids are this, and, and, and my work is so busy right now, and uh, it's just not going to help you. We have to make time to devote to the living God, to know him, to understand him. Which means if you know, even as, maybe you're here this morning, and you're like, I just came to Christ. Guess what? friend, you get the rest of your life to know the living God. And guess what? Here is where you can find him. Start in the Gospels. There's no better place to start than the Gospels as a new believer. Watch how Jesus displayed himself and, and demonstrated righteousness and holiness and care and concern for people. Start in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. You're not going to go wrong. Because when you see him, you will get to know the Father who is in heaven. 
You want to know what the father would do? Watch what Jesus did. Everything that the father would have enacted or did to care for people, Jesus did. And you can bank on it that you will then begin to know him. You know, it's not just about maybe you're here and you say, you know, but I'm in the word. I'm really happy about that. There's no elder here uh, that, 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 is, that has been called to serve and care for you that wouldn't be delighted to hear those words like, you're in the Bible. You're studying the word of God. Oh, those are good words. Maybe it's time to just sit down sometime in your devotions because this living, transcendent, holy God has made himself known to you. You've experienced it. You know what it's like when you feel like all is lost and all of a sudden God comes and cares for your soul, cares for a loved one, provides for your needs, a something comes in the mail that you could never expect. Who do you think's behind all that? It is the living God. Maybe it's time to just sit down on your devotions and for a moment and just say, I'm just going to write out the ways that I've experienced the very goodness and kindness and holiness and righteousness of God. And then in, instead of sitting there and saying, I'm going to repent of all these things, spend some time just glorifying him. We ask a lot of stuff as Christians, do we not? I think I probably spend more time saying, God, forgive me, than I do say, God, you're amazing because I'm that much of a sinner. But there are moments in our life where we need to step back recognizing our sinful state, that righteousness doesn't come on from me and that I can sit back and say, God, but you are great in spite of whatever I see in my own life. And I've seen you do this and you care and I've seen you do this and you love people. Take some time just enjoying that praise list of God's character and attributes. But it doesn't stop there. Revelation for the purpose of relationship. Paul moves on. Because he, ha he says, it's not only this, that I might know him. And then he says, the power of his resurrection. See, resurrection was for the purpose of reliability. What do you think keeps you saved? What good would a dead savior be? It would be no good at all to you. Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 15. If Christ is not raised, then we're all in trouble. What he's trying to say is, in my life, when I know him and I experience the power of his resurrected life, part of that resurrection power is given to you by the indwelling of the Spirit of God. And you know, his desire for you is to know him, to love him, and exemplify and image his character. This is, this is Paul's reliability of all of his ministry that he would say these kinds of things. He would say, well, if I'm, if I'm doing these very things in my life, I, I have to know that me being beat up from town to town, it's worth something. Like, if, here's why Paul, by the way, could have such holy abandonment. I love what this author, this one particular uh, theologian said who wrote a commentary, he said, he could throw himself, meaning Paul, he could throw himself into the present with a kind of a holy abandon, full of rejoicing and thanksgiving, and that not because, and not because he enjoyed suffering, but because Christ's resurrection had given him a unique perspective on present suffering. It's almost like he could say in the face of Satan, you can kill my body, but you're never taking my soul. That kind of holy abandonment 
fueled a person who could go get beat up, stoned, and all of these things that he experienced. Because what, in Paul's mind, I think this is what he grappled with in earlier part of Philippians. I mean, I, I want to stay and be with you, by the way. Oh, but I really want to be with Christ. See, it, it ushered in for his devotion. Even if you kill me, it doesn't even matter because I'm going to the presence of the living, transcendent God. And what I know now will pale in comparison to knowing him face to face. The resurrection brought that kind of courage and reliability to repentance and faith. It wasn't repent and then trust in your own righteousness or repent and then do good works to maintain it. No, this was a, a resurrection power that was modeled in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and it's by that very power that the Christian will one day be raised with him in newness of life. Well, this makes it so important because as we fully realize this kind of relationship, I mean, don't be afraid, young people, when you go and you share Christ at your school, in your place, at adult, at your workplace, or young person at your workplace, or college students on campus. What is the worst they say? Well, I hate your God. They're not even trying to kill you. They just don't like it. And so many times that because someone doesn't like what we have to say, we, we shy away from saying what, what we could say with grace and truth in a culture that doesn't want to hear it. I'm not talking about taking your Bible and slapping people over the face with it. Hitting them on the head. Get this in there. Now, you will turn people away. But you do have the responsibility to share the truth in love. But don't be afraid. What's the worst that someone can do? Take our life? And then we go and we're in the presence of the living God? Doesn't mean that we're haphazard, but means that we're, we're so truth-focused that there's something that means more to me than my own comfort and what people think about me. It has to. Otherwise, we'll never rely on the resurrection power. And that's what Paul was doing. Even if they beat him up, he's going to keep going. Resurrection power was this reliability. This is exactly what 1 Corinthians 15, listen to this. Behold, I tell you a mystery, Paul says to the Corinthians. We shall not all sleep, but we all shall be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For the perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. See, the resurrection is something that's there for you to be strong and courageous in your faith, young person. In the midst of a world that has gone mad with sin, Christians stand with the truth. Christians enjoy a freedom not to flaunt their liberty, to say, it's my right, but to say, I am free to obey Christ, the living King. To not be a stumbling block to one another. To give up rights that even might be uncomfortable for the sake of, a, of, of, of what the gospel would mean to people. This is so important for us. We do it all because he desired for revelation to be relationship-centered and that it would be anchored, with a, uh, solidified in the resurrection power. And then he just says this in the very last component. I love how he describes this. He says that I might know him the power of his resurrection, and that I might share in his sufferings. 
that participation was for the purpose of identification. That's the whole point. He uses this idea, this word share that you have written in your ESV, maybe, maybe you have a different translation. It is the word koinonia. It is the fellowship of his sufferings. See, how do you suffer? If, how do you suffer well for the glory of God if all of a sudden you don't have the power of the resurrection as your reliable source that will sustain you? If you wondered if you were going to sacrifice your life for this purpose and yet you didn't have the security of knowing you'd be with God if something really happened, would we have any missionaries go to a 1040 window? I think not. Because their hope is in the resurrection. And that they were willing to participate and share in his sufferings that every moment, what kind of sufferings, by the way? I mean, have your mind just gravitate to 2 Corinthians 6, 4 through 10 as I read it. I'm going to pause along the way, but I want you to realize this participation and fellowship of his sufferings. Here's what Paul says. But as a servant of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance. Are you ready to endure, Christian? In affliction, in hardships, in calamities, in beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, and genuine love by truthful speech and the power of God with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise. We are treated as impostors, Paul said, and yet are true as unknown and yet well-known as dying, and behold, we live as punished, and yet we are not killed. As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, and yet possessing everything. See, Christian, your life, when you participate in identifying with the sufferings of Christ, you will have to endure. You will have to persevere. It will be done through all kinds of different avenues of sleepless nights. We had a raise of hands. How many people actually sleep through the whole night? I think you'd be amazed that they don't. That there are things on your mind, people that you care about, children that are all out and about. What happens? They're on your mind. God, care for them. God, watch over them. Watch over my loved ones. Paul did this when he said, when he was talking about the thorn in a further part of 2 Corinthians, and he says, for the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. Why? For when I am weak, then I am strong. Christian, the strength comes from no one other than Jesus Christ. We know him. We have the power of the resurrection that secures our standing with him. We have the participation in his sufferings. And then he adds this little phrase at the very end. I think it's very interesting. Verse 11 ends with this. That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. I know, you're probably tracking for the last three weeks and you're thinking, it's not you, it's not your righteousness, it's not your works. And then he says that I might attain the resurrection like, is he really switching back to a now a work-centered righteousness? No. He is further expressing the holy abandonment that a Christian ought to have, that he works hard with all the strength that he, has, he can muster until the very end when the resurrection 
comes to full reality and you're in, and you're in face-to-face communion with the living God. This is not Paul now switching back to a works righteousness. This is Paul saying, go after it with everything in you. You can know him, you're secured in him, but it's gonna include this. But go after it. This, is, this was what sets up, by the way, the very next, the next section in our text that Paul's gonna go to, that, that Pastor Jeremy, because I'm gone next week, he's gonna bring you into this, to this idea when Paul says, I press on. Jeremy's going to unpack this for you. But, he's, but Paul, right before he gets into there, says, but you're doing it, you're knowing him, you're secured in him, and work with all your strength in the midst of suffering. And if you do that, you will, you will, you will be known, and you will be known by this God because of your righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. What does that mean? It means this. We could resonate with Paul in Galatians 2.20 when he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me, and he gave himself for me. Christians, as we fight side by side together to live holy, unified lives before the living, transcendent, holy God. Let's live with a sense of holy abandonment. Not caring what people think in the world, needing identity or, or, or people pleasing, wondering if they're gonna think, but live with a holy abandonment saying, I've got to know this God. And when you know him, you wanna love him, and obey him. The more you do that, the more you and I do that together, we will be unified for the sake of the gospel as one group, one body with one mindset. That's the whole point that he's getting at in Philippians. Have this mindset, the mindset of sacrifice in Christ so we can live with a holy abandonment. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your kindness to us. Lord, your commitment to us Lord, it's just, it's amazing that this transcendent God would want to be known. Lord, that you would break through earth history in a way that you would send your only son so that we might know you, the living God. Lord, help us to live with this kind of holy abandonment, self-sacrifice as we enjoy you forever. Thank you, Lord. In your name we pray, amen.